Hey guys, Winston here. And this week on the Revenue Alignment Podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Zachary Harding. Um, he and I, we, we sat down and, you know, we had a conversation for almost two hours. So, you know, one of the things I was thinking is rather than really cutting down this, this um, episode to, you know, try and fit it into one, one episode, I decided to do a part one and a part two because Zachary dropped so much value, so many golden nuggets in this episode. I didn't want to, I didn't want to cut out anything. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to show part one this week and then I'll have the follow up to part two um, next week. Uh, so, you know, give you guys a bit of time to really watch them, you know, digest everything that he's saying so you can really learn from his years of knowledge and wisdom. So. That being said, hope you guys enjoy it. Let's get right into it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, depending on where you are, what time you are listening to this. My name is Winston, and this is another episode of the Revenue Alignment Podcast. Today, we have an amazing guest, a legend in the field, a guru, you would say, Mr. Zachary Harding. Zachary, how are you doing with us? Um, How are you doing today? I'm fantastic, Winston. Thanks very much for allowing me to be on the program. And thank you very much for making the time to, to be on. I know that you have a very busy schedule, so we appreciate it. No worries. So, guys, just, just to help you understand why, why I call Zachary a legend, let me just go through a bit of his um, background and history. So he's held several positions within marketing as an accounting manager, marketing manager, brand manager, director of marketing, then went on to become the deputy director of tourism where we are in Jamaica. Um, you know, then went on to become the, the CEO of Appliance Traders Limited here in Jamaica as well, which is a consumer electronics brand. Then moved to become the founder at Agency 27, which was a marketing and strategy firm. Then became president at the Phoenix Group, which is a private investment firm. Moved on to you know, become the founder of Hyperion Equity, which is another private investment firm, moved to become the group CEO at Stocks and Securities Growth Equity. And now he's the executive chairman at Delta Capitals Limited, which is a private equity firm based out of Jamaica. So, Zachary, one, one of the reasons why I wanted you on this podcast is, you know, just based on your history, people can see that you have a mix of background in terms of being, you know, spending most of your career in marketing, but also being a CEO, more specifically, um, a CEO, well, today, more a CEO within a private equity firm. So it, it gives us that nice balance of understanding a marketer's perspective blended with a CEO's perspective and how both can really work together and collaborate to, to accomplish and, you know, answer the question which is the purpose of this podcast of how do you educate marketers to prove their value at a C-suite level. So before we even begin to get into any questions, just share with us your story, how you started out to, you know, how you became um, executive chairman at Delta Capital. Sure, no problem. So uh, my story took a different route than what most people would think. 
So born and raised in Jamaica, <clears throat> went to Campan College, really strong. Um, <laughs> went on to Ashbury College in Canada, which is a boarding school, and then had to make a university decision. So I applied, applied and got into several universities in Canada, but at the time the dollar was sliding and you know my parents already had my brother overseas at school. So I thought I'd be the good son, come back to Jamaica, go to UAE, because I'd also gotten into UAE and saved them a pile of money. Um, I'd always said I wanted to do law and business, law and business, law from as a little kid. Having really no concept of either, but my dad was a lawyer and I just, I thought he was pretty cool. So I was like, all right, you know what, I'll just do law too. So nice. came back, went to UAE, and after finishing up first year at Mona, would have had to go to Cave Hill for years two and three. And the idea at the time just didn't appeal to me. Right? And I was like, you know what? I don't really know if this law thing is for me. And that started when in my first class, the lecturer came in and the first words out of his mouth was, if anybody is here because they think lawyers make a lot of money, now would be a really good time to leave. <laughs> and I was just like, what kind of opening sentence is that to tell as a student? So anyway, I stuck it out. I did a year, I passed everything. I got good grades, but I just had no interest in, in going to years two and three. It just wasn't for me. Yeah. Additionally, um, somebody forgot to tell me and or I forgot to ask, what's the number one characteristic that would be necessary for somebody to do law? And that is being a good reader. Right. So when I first touched down on my first week and they're like, OK, and it's not like now with Internet and all of these things. Right. They're like, OK, go to the library and read this stack of cases. I was just like, that's not me, because even though in CXC, I got a one in literature, <clears throat> um, the biggest book I ever read was a book called Odali's Choice, which was about 35 pages long. I'm just not <laughs> a reader. I just don't read a lot of stuff like that. And if I'm reading yeah. anything, it's more like an instructions manual, right? I don't read novels or anything like that. I like reading business books, though. So anyway, I left. Moral of the story. It wasn't for me. I had to do something for myself. Uh, at the time, I said, you know what? Let me start having some parties because I thought it was a kind of a good business model. Plus, as a party guy, I like to go out a lot and I wanted to improve on what I was seeing. And that's an important part of the theme because that's what I've done throughout a lot of my career is I've seen something and then I've innovated and renovated to try and make it better and connected it with something else to try and make it bigger. So I started having parties, <clears throat> um, didn't like how some of the DJs played. So I'm like, you know what? I need to learn how to DJ. So then I started to learn how to DJ and I became a DJ. Started a sound system called Syndicate Disco and I was playing alongside Renaissance, Traveler, Stone Love, King of These, HMV, you name it. Right. Then I had to get a regular day job because I got married young. So I got married at 21 with our first child and the DJing thing alone wasn't enough. Yeah. So I uh, was able to get a job at Crown Plaza Hotel in Manor Park. And my first job, I was a bellman carrying people's bags. These things are all going to tie back in. Right. So I'm a bellman carrying people's bags. And then a relative said, hey, you know what? There's an opening at an advertising agency for an assistant to the vice president. 
it's you know like literally like an assistant to her so why don't you you know try out for it and see if you get a job so i went and i did the interview and they saw something in me and i said you know what we're gonna give you a try so i was her personal assistant and i just got very involved in advertising and just realized that i'd found my calling at that point in time because yeah. i'm like this is great i can work with a creative team to develop logos and campaigns and i can work with the media team to like buy advertising and then i can so it was really fascinating for me and i really literally worked from the male room come right up right or the female room for to be keep it gender <laughs> um come right up and i just i just got i fell in love with marketing from there right worked at two other agencies learned everything but then i was like you know what i think i have better ideas about how these brands could be marketed so i now right. want to switch and go on the, the client side and not be on the agency side because i want to have a budget and i want to determine what we do with the strategy of this brand so i left and i went over to the client side worked for grace kennedy um then i got an opportunity to go to red stripe because they were one of the sponsors of my parties and i never forget we had smirnoff which was one of the sponsors and the guy who was a brand manager came to me after they had sponsored us for like a couple of months and we were having like this um monthly event at devon house it was called club liquid and it was a huge success and the guy came to me and he was like zachary do you want my job <laughs> and i was like no no i don't i'm good like, i don't want your job at all like i love working with you like i mean no he was like no do you want my job yeah i said what do you mean he said whatever you're doing you're 10 times better at this than i am and i can't understand what you're doing but this place is rammed every month and my product is just like selling off the shelves and i can't even explain it to my bosses back at redstrap so you know at first i was like listen boy you know self doubt boy i don't think i could take on a job in you know, as a brand manager at red stripe like i don't have any qualifications i don't have a marketing degree you know you know worked in advertising for a little bit and he said don't worry i see something in you so i went i did this psychometric evaluation test apparently i did very well got the job at red stripe and i was one of the few actually as the only person to get a brand manager job at red stripe that didn't have a first degree much less a first degree in marketing yeah i went there started doing my thing was having a lot of luck launched smirnoff ice with dean shepherd who was my co-brand manager at the time right dean shepherd now has blueprint consulting um they now merge with another entity so we launched smirnoff ice that blew up smirnoff ice was just the biggest thing at the time and then the smirnoff brand started to grow and i remember us on a plane once traveling and a journalist barbara ellington asked me zachary what do you think is the key to success for you like what what is it why every time you go somewhere you work on a brand it seems to do very well and i thought about it and i was like you know what it's actually from being a dj so she was like what being a dj like that that makes no sense i don't understand <laughs> and i'm literally thinking about it on the fly so i'm like well as a dj what i'm really doing is i'm reading the crowd yeah or the target market to deliver a product which is the next song You're right elicit some kind of buy in or purchase decision which is to 
dance or put your hands in the air or sing out or boss a gunshot for a forward or whatever the case is. So I'm like, it's from doing that over and over and over throughout the years that I've learned how to read an audience and how to almost forecast what's the next thing that they're going to want. Right? So I always attribute a lot of my marketing success to my DJ because they're very, very similar. Went to Wisinko, head of marketing there, worked on brands such as Water, W-A-T-A. When I got there, Water was like, some poor man's ghetto water from Riverton City with some chlorine tablets. That was a perception. Yeah. And worked with a team there. And within one year, we were the number one bottled water brand in Jamaica. Mm. Also worked on bigger soft drinks, which at the time too was considered like, oh, that's like a cheap you know, imitation of DNG. Of DNG, yeah. <laughs> worked with the team. And then within a two-year period, we were on par in terms of sales with DNG. And I think Bigger now outsells DNG, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they do. Um, and also, one of my favorite brands and brand stories is Ocean Spray, which was really the reason why I went to Wisinko. As I said, this brand has a ton of potential, but I don't think they're positioning it properly in the marketplace. So when I got there, worked to the team, and I have a bit of a proprietary process that I've developed over the years. Um, and so I worked with the team and carried them through that process. We applied it. It's called an Oracle, which stands for Objective, Research, Consumer Insights, Learnings, and then Execution. We can talk about that after. So that's a process that I use marketing-wise for everything that I've worked on. And so when I got to Wisinko, Ocean Spray was doing about 150,000 cases a year. Um, and they'd been in the market for like the last 15 years. They were growing at maybe 3%, maybe 5% a month, a year, sorry. And when I got there, I bet my boss, William, my food, my job. I said, I'll double this brand in one year, but you have to give me the right budget. All right. So this is coming back now to the whole argument about justification. Right. right? So, and we think at the time wasn't an aggressive marketing company. I mean, they were known for Ironman water boots and sweet cup paper plates and stuff um, and Samsonite garbage bags. So I said, listen, we have to turn this thing into a marketing engine because we have the brands. William of Food, hands down, best boss I ever had, said, all right, Zachary, put a plan in place and tell me how much money you need. So I put a plan in place, put the budget forward. And he's just like, how, how can you justify this? This is like so much more than we spend on all of our brands. I said, here is the rationale behind it. And I explained it to him, right? We're going to get back to that. We executed. And within the first year, we went from 150,000 cases to 450,000 cases. So I kept my job. That was the first thing <laughs> because I bet in my job. Second year, we went from 450,000 to 800,000. And by the third year, when I left, we were at 1.2 million cases of ocean spray. Mm. So I'd nearly tenfolded the brand in three years after the brand was only growing 5% for the last 15 years. So how did we do it is the question, right? Yes, that was definitely going to be my next question. Right, okay. So how we did it, and it's the same thing with water. We were like number fifth, number five in the in the market share. And by the time I left, within the one year, we were number one. Right now, obviously, 
distribution and sales play a critical role because we're seeing quite a distribution beast and they had a hell of a sales team. But what people don't always come to understand is what exactly is marketing and what exactly is a brand, right? So people think of marketing as, oh, you need to do a campaign. You need to do a flyer. You need to develop a logo. You need to have some nice creatives. You need to do a promotion. You need to be in the streets. You need to be in the supermarkets. Yes, all of those things are there, but those are just tools or techniques or tactics that you would use. Marketing at the end of the day is about building an emotional relationship and connection with the consumer. That is what marketing is, right? It's not sales. Sales is its own different animal and there's a whole sales process. But marketing is about connecting with people in a way that they believe in your story and they're willing to support you. So it is very much a relationship. Okay. And stop me at any time to ask questions because as I said, I can talk about this for like days, right? But I want to give you a couple of stories and examples. So first story, water, W-A-T-A water. When I got to Wisinko, the number one water brand by far, Catherine Speak. They had another brand called Cool Runnings and they had a couple of other brands and we were number five. So this is water. Even when I first heard about water and and people drinking bottled water, I'm like, this is the dumbest idea ever. Why don't you just put air in a bottle and sell them air? I mean, I grew up in Jamaica, play football, you drink water out of the pipe. How can you bottle water? I I used to have that same perception as well. But it made no sense. No sense. I have to create value, right? So I said, well, how can we... What can we do to be different? So I said, all right, cool. Well, water, hydration, sports for me, because you're going to hit a large target market with sports, right? Yeah. Okay. So what's the number one sport in Jamaica that involves the most people? Football. Football, right. Right? All right, cool. So then we have to attach ourselves to football. We couldn't get um, schoolboy football at the time um, because it was owned by Pepsi. Um, and then the, the, you know, what we call Alberga or, or my lockup at the time, prep school and primary school, it was kind of too small and those weren't really the people buying the products. It was their parents. So we said, all right, well, where the place where we have to go is national premier league and national team JFF. So we met with both of them negotiated to put it in context at the time. Ryan Nevy was spending 100 million Jamaican dollars to sponsor the National Premier League. It used to be the Ryan Nevy National Premier League, right? So we came in and we said, all right, we want to get on board too. Obviously, we don't have 100 million dollars, but here's what we want to do differently. Instead of cutting checks to the clubs, because there were 12 clubs, so instead of cutting a check for like eight grand to each club, we said we don't want to limit sorry, 8 million. We don't want to limit the clubs to just being able to earn $8 million. So why don't we work together? If the clubs can help us to sell more water, I'll give every club $1 per bottle of water sold in their community. All right, cool. But then how are you going to differentiate? Because, you know, water is one water. So I said, all right, cool. We met different labels. So we did what we could do with the brands, which is we had control over the labels. The product was still the same product, but we made an Arnett Gardens water. 
Tivoli Gardens water, Waterhouse water, Harborview water, Reno water, Portmore United water. And remember, these are all inner city communities with big followings that go to football matches. Right. So what do you think ended up happening? In Arnett Gardens, Amanda say, yo, no water can sell down there except for WATA water. Because every bottle that we sell, our $1 is going back to the club. Winston, within one month, every single other brand of bottled water could not be found in any of those 12 communities. Just WATA water. Right? So within one year of the Premier League sponsorship, water became the number one bottled water brand in Jamaica and was recognized on par with Rhea Nephew as the sponsor of the National Premier League. Yet we were spending 10% of what their budget was. Mm. And I don't think they were very happy with me, right? <laughs> so, that's a water story. And we developed all of the creatives around it. We had a TV ad which showed people in their colors and so. But the insight out of it is Jamaicans are loyal to brands that are loyal to them and their communities. Yeah. Right. Uh, and before you even jump to the next story, Zachary, because just from this one story, there are so many things I want to unpack that I had yeah. to take a pen and paper and write down <laughs> everything. My my first thing, which I think would be the most beneficial to the to the audience, is how did you actually, you know, in this case, it was um, William Muffu, the CEO of uh, Wisinka. Yeah. How did you justify that budget, even before generating any revenue whatsoever? Like, what was how did they make that business case? What was exactly in that plan for 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 William to say, all right, I mean. I trust you. I mean, I don't know if it's going to work, but I trust you enough based on the plan right. to at least try. Like, what, 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 how, how did you make that business case? Right. Brilliant question. Right. And the honest answer is some of it came with luck and some of it just came with me being me and just trying to convince William and William just taking a chance on me because there was no foolproof way. Right. But yeah. what I brought to it was a level of discipline and training that I'd learned at Red Stripe because mm-hmm. I was at Red Stripe before. So normally you have a brand manager, you run a company, White Shirt Limited, and you have a brand manager and brand manager comes and say, yo, I have a wicked idea. I want to sponsor all of the businessmen in Jamaica, give them one of our shirts, and then hopefully they will then go and buy a second one. And you're like, but how much is that going to cost us? Boy, yeah. $10 million. All right, but if it's going to cost us $10 million, what guarantee you have that we're going to make back that $10 million? Well, I don't really have it, but we have to try it. I went to school in England to do basically a three-week course, and it was called the Diageo Way of Brand Building. Mm. And so Diageo had their own system of marketing. And that was really my MBA in marketing, was working at Red Stripe. Because you had to justify every single dollar. Yeah. Right? So this is how it works. You have a scale and you have four or five different categories of consumers that buy from you or that are potential buyers from you. Yeah. So you have the people, I won't want to go into the technical, but basically you have the people that aren't too sure. So they might buy occasionally, every now and again. They're kind of brand agnostic. It don't really matter to them. You have the people that are regular, they buy from you, 
but they also buy other brands, but they kind of buy from you a little bit more. Then you have some people that you're their prefer preferred brand. Right? They'll always choose you once you're available. And then you have another category called staunch, which is they only purchase your brand, nothing else. A man just, him not wearing nothing but Adidas. That's just his brand. It don't matter yeah. what you do. A man just, him just voting for PNP, no matter what. Him just staunch. That's like, that's his thing, right? Those people, you can't really do anything to, to change them. You have to have like a disaster with your brand to change them. So you focus on all of the spectrums. And then what we did is we had a calculation of the volume of sales per category. So the, the sometime people bought from you, I'm just making it up, once a year. Right. The somewhat regulars buy once a month. The very regulars buy once a week and the staunch buying from you once every day. If you put that in a spreadsheet and you say, okay, all of that adds up to, you know, 150,000 cases in the case of Ocean Spray, and I need to get to 200,000 cases, who do I move up along that scale to give me the volumes that I need? Mm. So that way you're tying an actual description of a person and their interaction with your brand to their purchase patterns to volume targets at the end of the day. So going through that process, I was able to say, all right, cool, you know what? I just need my staunches to buy one more bottle a week. They already know buy one bottle a day. Right. right? So I need them to buy one more bottle a week. So that's 52 more bottles for the year that they're going to buy. And I can do the math on how much sales that's going to result in. <clears throat> the people that buy once a month I need to get them to buy twice a month. So that's now 12 more incremental bottles. So I've gone 52 and I've gone 12 more incremental bottles. That's 64. The people that buy every now and again, but not really, I need them to buy once every two months. So that's six. So that's now 64 and six, that's 70. And then the people that don't buy really much at all, I need them to buy once a year, right? So that's 12. So that's 70 plus 12, that's 82. I've now mathematically figured out how I'm going to move to 82 incremental bottles per customer or per target group for, for my cohort of for every four people. And I can, I can tell you what that works out to in terms of a dollar value. So if I can, if I can, if I can now deliver those 82 or whatever the number um, of product sales and each bottle costs $10, then I know I can deliver $820. And if it costs me $500 for the cost of sales of the product, then I know I can have an additional $320, right? That way I can then come to you and say, give me $320 per whatever for my marketing budget. Because if I do this and I achieve these sales, we'd be no worse off I can now tell you exactly how much additional money these sales would generate. Then if you give me that money and I deliver, then at, at, at best or worst case, we're still breaking even, but I've now delivered more sales volume, right? And then there's what you call a decay effect. So if I do that once for one year and everybody you know, gets up the scale, if I do no marketing for the next year, those sales are not going to disappear because yeah. you used to do one a day and now you're doing 
one every day, but one additional bottle a month, maybe you do one additional bottle every half month, or maybe you love the product and then now you're doing two additional bottles every month. So there, so it was, it was run back down a little bit, but I'll still have more sales next year than I did the year before. Yeah. And then what am I delivering? Incremental margins. Because for every bottle, there's margin that is being made. And so now I can mathematically show you how I spent the money, how sales went up, how margins increased, the impact that it had on profit, and therefore, if we're better off or not from a bottom line position. Listen, <laughs> I, I was trying to, to hold back from, from jumping in as you're going through this because I was so excited by that breakdown. And what, what I love, and you said something, and I was like, yes, is that too often the reason why most marketers fail to really prove the value of marketing is because they're, they're asking for budget and they just want to throw it at something, throw it at a campaign without any sort of like process or, 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 or data to show, well, if I invest in this, how am I going to generate at least a break-even ROI or a positive, net positive ROI? Really? And that's the piece that most marketers are missing, using that data to, to quantify and justify the spend. <laughs> you, you just so said I, the magic word. I love that you story. just said the magic word, right? And that's exactly where I was going to next, which is data. I don't right. consider myself a marketer, right? Because it, just, mm. it has a connotation of, oh, you just like to spend money and you like to go out there and you like to make a bunch of noise. But who really yeah. knows if what you're doing makes sense? No, I don't consider myself a marketer. I consider myself a social scientist, mm. right? Because everything that we're doing comes back to people. Right. I'm not selling bottles of red stripe bear to robots or animals. I'm selling it to people. Therefore, I have to understand the people that I'm trying to sell it to. And so I now need to gather the data around that target market to better understand them so that I can position the product in a way that makes sense for them. So this now comes back to my Oracle model, which I mentioned to you. Right? And this is a this is a whole day's class in and of itself, right? So I'm going to <laughs> do it in like a 60 seconds, right? Okay. Foolproof process. Oracle. First thing is objective. What are we trying to achieve? You have to start with a plan. Some right. people don't start with a plan. If you don't have a plan, you can't measure against it. So you don't know whether you are even successful or not. Yeah. Right? So first thing is, what's the objective? And you could have objectives... Um, uh, phrase in different ways. So many times, the way that I phrase the objective is really, how can I convince Winston that the white shirts that I'm making are the best white shirts that he could buy for his job? Mm. As opposed to, how can I convince Winston to buy my shirt? Right. Mm. We don't get there yet. How yeah. can Winston buy my shirt if it's not the right shirt for him? Maybe he just likes wearing black. So I'm, right. you know, I'm trying to position something that he doesn't want. So I first have to define my target market, going back to the DJ and reading the target market, know you who you're playing to, 
if you're trying to get a forward, are you playing to the liquor badman group in the corner or you're trying to play <laughs> some rock out songs to the girls so that some whining and thing can go on so that the man them get more excited, know who you're targeting. All right? right. So first of all, define the objective. When you define the objective, it must be def defined in a smart manner. And that means specific, measurable, achievable. Some people say audacious, realistic, and time-bound. So I don't just say, how can I get Winston to like my product and my white shirts? Yeah, right? I have to be specific. So how can I get 130 Winstons, right? So that's specific and it's measurable. I can, I can know whether or not I hit 130 or not. To believe that my shirts are of the highest quality, Right. So maybe that's an audacious goal because I want to be seen as number one. Is it attainable? Yeah, it's attainable because we have really good cotton quality that we're using. So I can't, I can't attain something that is not it's not realistic. It's not authentic in the product. It must be realistic and it must be time bound. So I would end off that sentence by saying by the end of July 2022. So now I have a very clearly defined objective. How do I convince right. 130 Winstons that my white shirts are the number one shirt for him by the end of 2022? There's a lot in there for me to go after, right? right? That's just objective setting alone, right? So that's just the O in the Oracle. The next step is the RE, which is a research. I have to do research. I can't know anything if I don't do any research. It comes back to what you just said, which is the data. Right. So first of all, I have to go out there and I have to do research to find out, does Winston care? Does he want a white shirt? Maybe he wants black. Maybe I need to pivot away from trying to sell white shirts and sell black because of whatever reason. Right. right. So I do my research. I segment my targets. So I know, all right, listen, there's some Winstons out there that wear a white shirt every day. But then I have this other subset that they only wear a white shirt once per week. And the rest of the week, they wear color shirts. Mm. If I want to sell more white shirts to them, I now need to convince them that they should wear white more often because it's going to make them look more professional. Right. So I have that subset to deal with. Then I have a next subset that might just be like, I don't wear white shirts because the color gets too dirty and I live alone and I can't bother wash it. And it don't work when I throw it in the washing machine. It still come out with a mark on it. So I now need to develop a different strategy for that person, right? Data, data, data. So that's a research part of it. I may ask questions like, what's the price point that you can afford to buy a white shirt? How often do you buy white shirts? And, you know, I could go on and on and on in terms yeah. of gathering more information about it, right? So that's a research part. Then you come to the consumer insight. This part, many people don't get. This part is the DNA of marketing. Remember I said I'm a social scientist. You have to understand the consumer even better than they understand themselves. Yeah. Right? Then now you come to the learnings. That's the L, Oracle, right? So C, consumer, and then learnings. So what can I learn from my competitors? What can I learn from what I've done before that worked? What did I do before that didn't work? 
How much did I spend? How much did I make? Just, just again, gathering data. What are the lessons out there? What can I, what worked in other countries? What strategy did they use in another country? Let me analyze this commercial. What were they really targeting when they put this commercial out there? What partnerships did they go with? Did they, did they go and partner with Tide because they wanted to make a correlation between having the brightest, whitest shirts with a particular um, kind of detergent, right? So maybe in the supermarket, it is, you know, buy three um, bottles of Tide and get a free white shirt. I'm just making up stuff on the fly. Right? <laughs> and then finally, you get to execution. Mm. So how am I now going to execute my plan? All right, cool. You know what? There's an investor forum coming up. And they're going to be panelists speaking on the stage. I want to sponsor this conference. And I'm going to give each of them a white shirt to wear. But I'm going to customize it and put their logo on, this, on the wrist part of it. And then I'm going to put a sign out at the front that says sponsored by White Shirt LLC. So when people are attending the conference, lights are on them. They say, yo, every man looks sharpie. The color them just look fit right and you know, the shirt just sit down on them proper. Oh, wow, it's sponsored by a white shirt. Yo, I need to get myself some of those white shirts. That's the execution part. That, that's, a, that's what people see and feel and touch and smell at the end of the day. Right? It's not just about having an event. Uh, yeah. It has to be an immersive, experiential thing because ultimately you're trying to build an emotional connection with the consumer, right? So that's a process. And then with that process now, I was able to go to William and said, this is my plan. I have a plan. This is who I'm going to target. This is how I've segmented the target. This is who I think is going to buy X amount of bottles more per person, per month period, per year. When you add them all up, we're going to move from 150,000 cases to, you know, one or 200,000 cases. So that would be 50 on 150. So that would be a 30% increase in sales. If I'm able to get to an additional 50 cases, 50,000 cases, each case sell for $1,000. So I work out that math and I say, you know, whatever the math works out to be, $50 million. I want that. But then of that, the margin is really 20%. So I'll be making you an extra $10 million in net margin. Give me $5 million out of that. So I can justify it because I have a plan in place. And then you have to try it, see what works, see what doesn't work. And then you wheel and come again next time around. And I can give you that example for every single brand that I've ever worked with. Yeah. But I, th I think, you know, Zachary, I'm, why? I'm so glad you brought that down, even without me having to prompt you or ask you a question around it. Um, because, and this is for the audience, I, I want you guys to really pay attention to how he's explaining um, his entire marketing process, marketing plan. It's not focused around, well, we want to do this campaign because it will raise brand awareness. Because, and, and, I, I don't know if you've seen this, Zachary. I mean, I, I've seen it. I, I can't even attest to back in the day, I used to have this same mindset, um, but I forced myself out of it where as marketers, we often don't like to be accountable to a specific metric. 
because then if we fail to to accomplish or achieve that metric or goal, whatever the case may be, um, then you know it makes us look. I guess you could call it incompetent, or that we're we're unable to to do our jobs, and you know the potential of being fired um, comes into play. Right. But it's it's very important because it's it's more likely that you can get someone at a C, C, CEO level or a C-suite level to buy into what you're doing because how how their brain work is based on numbers, based on data, based on ROI. Um, you know, because they see marketing as an investment, it's not a pet project <laughs> where, you know, if you lose the money, oh, well, you know, we, we, we did it and we had fun so we can move on to the next thing. No. But a, a follow-up question I definitely want to have based on what you said is um, that whole aspect of the research and, and consumer insights, which I found very interesting because one of the things I found is that marketers, they, they, they tend to, skip past that part um i don't know why because it's a, it's something that i i love doing for one and i can't see myself putting together any sort of plan and strategy unless i have a conversation with the consumer the customer so why why, why do you think that is and by the way this isn't limited to jamaica it's not a jamaica thing it's a marketer thing worldwide why do you think uh, marketers tend to skip that part which is probably the most important part Never really thought about it before, to be honest with you. I think what comes to mind for me is a lot of the people that are in marketing are coming at it from a theoretical standpoint. So they went to university, they got a degree in marketing. Mm. And so they're kind of trained and programmed to just say, oh, well, you know, I'm a marketer. This is what I'm going to, I'm going to build out a plan and I'm going to spend some money on TV, radio, advert, you know, internet. Uh, blah blah but they don't they're not necessarily social scientists you have to care about people (laughs) you have to really understand people because you have some people that are the greatest marketers in the world and they don't have no degree in marketing but they have an intuition that they can read the market and know what is it that people want and then develop a product and then deliver to them what they want right so first of all what is the purpose of being in business? So some people just be like, all right, cool. Well, you know, I'm in business to make a profit. Okay, fine, cool. We, we get that. We can wrap my head around yeah. that. How do you make a profit? Well, I just sell product to people and I charge them more than it costs me. All right, cool. How are you going to convince people to buy it at that? So they don't necessarily take it through the whole process. Now, the real objective of being in business to make a profit is to sell as much product as possible to as many people as possible as often as you can and at the right price okay that's four different things that i just said a while ago so to sell as much product as possible okay fine there's a lot in there you have to first of all define the product Right. And as much product as possible, you can't, if you're in Jamaica and there's 3 million people in Jamaica, you can't sell 3 million Mercedes Benz. Mm. <laughs> so how much is that as possible? Your, right. your range for what's possible might be 1,000. That, that might be what the addressable market is and the people and the potential people that have the funds 
that could buy a high-end luxury car and you're competing with BMW, you're competing with Audi, you're competing with Porsche, you're competing with people that already have a car so they don't necessarily need a car. You have to break that down, right? So as much product as possible to as many people as possible, right? Again, defining who could a potential target be, right? Is there now a low-end Mercedes-Benz that could operate as a taxi? Maybe, you know, just broaden the market because in some countries, Benz have taxis, yeah. right? As often as possible. So obviously you sell a Benz now, it's going to last 15, 20 years. <clears throat> That's not a high turnover product, right? So you have to think that through. Maybe I'm better off selling Toyotas because maybe I can turn those more, those more often, mm-hmm. right? At the highest price possible. I'm going to repeat that one at the highest price possible. No, the highest price possible doesn't mean a high price. Mm. It's the highest possible <laughs> price. Right. So right. the highest possible price I may be able to sell a bottle of water for is $150. Mm-hmm. So if I priced a bottle at $500, I just not going to sell very many because it's just out of whack with what people are potentially willing to buy a, a, a bottle of water for. Right. So just in that, in those four things alone, you're defining, you're defining, you're defining, you're segmenting, and then you can get several data points around that. Now, maybe one of the reasons going back to the question why people don't think that way is because they're not breaking it down to a personal level. Right. I'll give you a quick story, and I have stories for this <laughs> Ocean Spray. Yeah. Right. Came back to Ocean Spray. The Global manager for Ocean Spray came to a Cinco and I asked her a question. I said, remember we're talking now about people and connecting with people and the consumer and I'm a social scientist. So I said to her, what's the, what's the global positioning of Ocean Spray? Like, who, who is this product for? You know, like, who, who is, what's the right target person for this product? Like, you know, she said, oh, that's very easy to answer. We have a very clear strategy globally. I said, okay, tell me. She said, ocean spray is for women primarily between the ages of 18 to 24 years old who are in their first job or are in college and are becoming sexually active and are at risk of getting a urinary tract infection. Uh, This is good. What are you talking about? That is the least sexy brand proposition I've ever heard in my life. I said, that can't work here in Jamaica. Maybe that works in Manhattan. Maybe it works yeah. in Paris. Or That now work here. So, Right? So I had to then try and say, well, let me now find the right insight for this product that can connect with people in Jamaica. Went through my process, oracled it out with my team, did a bunch of research, right? Got the data back in, read the research, distilled it, and came up with a new insight. And the new insight was, and it's going to sound really plain, and I'm going to break it down. The new insight was, Jamaican consumers want to live healthier lifestyles. They do this by incorporating healthy habits into their existing routine. Yeah. May not sound too complicated, but let's break it down. Jamaican consumers, not the world. (laughs) 
not the Manhattan consumers, not the Paris consumers. I own business with them. I'm not selling ocean spray in Paris, right? <laughs> Jamaican consumers want to live healthier lifestyles. There's a movement at that time towards wellness and health and being healthy and fit and stuff. So that's an important thing because Ocean Spray has the credentials to be seen as a healthier option to other things like soda. Mm. So how do the consumers do this? This is a critical thing. They incorporate healthier habits into their existing routine. Okay, so let's backtrack that. Existing routine. They have a routine. They wake up every day, they do the same thing every week. So I need to infiltrate their existing routine. I need to incorporate my product into their existing routine because then that way they'll see it as living a healthier lifestyle because I'm now embedded into their existing routine. Okay, so what's their existing routine? All right, well... People drink liquor. Lots of people drink liquor. Okay, cool. So do I want to position my product as something that is good for urinary tract infections? So that if Winston is out at a party with his cup flossing with an ocean spray, people are going to say, yo, that man never oh, used yeah. to the ocean spray. Well, urinary tract infection. <laughs> that makes no sense, right? So I have to reposition it now to say, This product has healthy attributes. It's not just for UTIs. It's just healthier for you. So we say, okay, what's the number one consumed alcohol product per volume nationally? White rum. Yeah. Okay? Okay, you can't can't do anything with red stripe anyway. You can't have a red stripe on ocean. Okay, so white rum. All right. So does it pair well with white rum? Yes, it actually does. It's an amazing drink. We tested it ourselves. It tastes really damn good. Okay, where's white rum primarily sold? In the root bars. You know, countryside, road shop, downtown, wherever, inner city, that's where white rum is, the volume of sales are sold. Again, going back to the data, we did the research, we know where that. All right, so let's, let's create a drink, mixing cranberry juice with white rum. It had never been done before anywhere in the world. You, just, you don't drink ocean spray with white rum. You don't drink a healthy drink with, with liquor. Exactly. And yeah. not just that, but if you do, it's vodka cranberry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah not yeah, yeah. white rum cranberry. So there is precedent for mixing a healthy drink with liquor, but they, just, they weren't mixing it with vodka because Ocean Spray was healthy. It's just because it was a good taste. Right. So we say, okay, it tastes good with white rum and we can position it as healthy. So you're a man wins on that drink regular with your friends and you beat up the, the rear nephew, regular, overproof is your thing. When you're in the bars, what do you drink it with? Pepsi. Yeah. And milk, right? No, no, that's what people part. drink. <laughs> I know you might not know about the milk part, right? But that's what people drink. In right, the countryside, right. is white rum, is rare nevi and milk. That's what they drink. Or if it's not that, then they drink it with Pepsi. So we create this, ju- this drink. It's called a Berry Buster. We start to promote events with it. And we take it as so we go in the root bars and we do promotions and we say, yo, just mix away rare nephew with this ocean spray drink. And people drink it and they're like, oh, it tastes good still. I say, yeah, and guess what? It's actually good for your digestive system and for your urinary tract and all that type of stuff. So you know it make you more potent and virile and 
all of these things. And so if you're going to drink your whites, just beat it with some cranberry juice that help to clean out the system and get rid of toxins. Yeah, that makes sense because I already know it's not too healthy for me to be drinking it with all of this sugary um, yeah, yeah. soda. So let me at least chase it with some. So if I'm going to do something unhealthy, remember the insight, Jamaican consumers want to live healthier lifestyles. They do this by incorporating healthy habits into their existing routine. So now my existing routine is I'll drink white rum. Let me at least incorporate a healthier product as ocean spray with my white rum, right? Within one year, we had double sales because it came down to a consumer insight and we went down market with that, plus we went uptown, right? Yeah. So we actually packaged a 750 milliliter bottle of rare nephew white rum. We went and met with them and, you know, did the chase and so package it in like a duty-free looking box with a red cranberry juice in the box and call it berry bust and put it in a box and put it on the supermarket shelf. So people are like, yo, this thing is legit. Brilliant. I saw the packaging, like it's in a supermarket shelf together, right? Long story to prove the point that consumer insight is everything because we moved people away from thinking that ocean spray was primarily for women Boom, yeah. we kicked that out and got rid of that. It's for everybody, right? Not women alone. And plus, men are a large cohort of the marketplace, right? So moved away from that to healthy habits, incorporating existing routine. What do they do? They drink white rum. They drink it in the bars. We create a drink. We mix it together. We sponsor parties. One year, 150,000 cases to 450,000 cases. Wow. Uh. Listen, I think I think this is going to need to be a two-part um, episode in terms of for, for the audience listening because, guys, I haven't, I haven't even gotten to my, my actual questions as yet. We're just talking and I'm just flowing with Zachary and just asking follow-up questions based on what he's talking about. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I personally don't mind because you're dropping so much value, Zachary. I mean, ah. I love, I love every second of it. All right, guys. As I said, you know, that was part one. Next week, I'm going to bring part two to you. So, you know, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Take care and until next week, all the best. This has been the Revenue Alignment Podcast. Join us next week where we have more amazing content to help you demonstrate, communicate, and prove your value at the C-suite level. I'm Winston, your host, and this is a wrap.